If you haven't had any kind of decision maker specifically assigned, it will go to everyone who fits within a class of people as defined by your state's law. That could mean 13 siblings having to come to consensus. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on how to respond to dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter's the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Oh, no. I'll keep you imbibed with wine. Thank you, dear. (laughs) (laughs) So in the past, we've talked about how my dad was very, when he came to live with us, he was very adamant about having um, financial medical powers of attorney in place for us. And part of that was because he had to go through so many hoops when my grandmother passed away. So he was very, very adamant that we get that taken care of. And, you know, I have spoken at conferences uh, about how diff- how those are difficult conversations, but also why they are important and how to get the conversation started. Absolutely. And it's, all, it's very often a difficult conversation. You know, we have tried to talk to uh, our daughter about it, and she just thinks we're going to live. She insists we're going to live forever, and she doesn't even want to talk about it. Right. So we have taken steps to make sure things are in place. So when the inevitable happens, the decision has already been made. Um, And that brings us to today's guest. And she is a certified First Steps Advanced Care Planning Facilitator and Instructor and is an Engagement Coordinator with Honoring Choices Virginia. Honoring Choices Virginia is actively engaging in the Commonwealth of Virginia to change the culture about future medical decision-making known as advanced care planning. Please welcome to the show, Laura Pilati. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. This is such an important conversation and such an important um, set of plans that people need to get in place and very often, it's it's a difficult conversation, as we talked about with our daughter. So we are very glad to have you with us today to share with us and with our listeners your expertise. Well, thank you. I'm just really honored to be here and, and hope that what I can share today is helpful to someone somewhere. Well, I'm sure it will be. What we usually like to kick off the show with our guest it, talking about any personal experience they've had with dementia behaviors or with a family member or a close friend. Um, if you've had that experience, would you take just a, you know, a little bit of time and, and tell our listeners about that? Yeah. So my maternal grandmother, who I called grandma, um, her name was Mary Ann, and she passed away in late 2015. Um, she lived with frontotemporal dementia for about seven or eight years, um, which I understand is pretty average um, for that that disease. And during that time, um, you know, it was very difficult for my family. Um, my mother um, served as one of her um, decision makers and conservators. Um, alongside my grandfather, who was her husband. And 
um, getting to uh, the, the last stages of her life was um, kind of uh, by the seat of your pants, if you will. <laughs> there had not been any kind of um, pre-conversations or planning that was done ahead of time. And um, as she kind of slowly slipped away in capacity, um, I think my family realized just how much there was to decide and and how much conversation didn't happen. And, and you know, it's I think the important point is you don't want to make these decisions at the end when you're in a grief, right? You're dealing with the grief and then have to try to make those decisions at that point in time, um, you know, final arrangements and so on and so forth. That's just one less thing that you have to, if you do it ahead of time, that's one less thing you have to do at the end. And you can just go through the grieving process. You can start and get on your way as opposed to having to do all that decision making. Right. You know, the, the, even the title of the program, My Care, My Choice, I think that's, that's empowering. And as we get closer to the time when it becomes more and more a reality as people in my age group, I definitely want people to know what my wishes are. Yeah, it's the problem with waiting until you're in a crisis moment is that emotions come up. Right. And unfortunately, emotions are not always the best um, uh, contributors, if you will, to making <laughs> uh, decisions that are in line with what we would want or trying to figure out what really our loved one wants and not what we want. Um, sometimes those things are different. In fact, most often they are different. <laughs> We're individual beings and we have different experiences, values, beliefs, and all of these things shape the way that we make decisions. Um, Unfortunately, if we don't have those conversations ahead of time, those emotions and difficult decisions can combine to make really difficult dynamics. And that's something that my own family saw as well. Um, unfortunately, my family's story didn't really end in um, a uh, happily ever after um, kind of situation, but we hope that by telling some of these stories and um, letting people know that they do have different options um, that we can create some better outcomes, both for individuals and their loved ones. Well, some of the challenges come when you have a number of siblings who don't agree. Now, when my mom was critically ill and decisions needed to be made, her three sons and her true daughters were all shaking their heads yes at the same time and shaking their heads no at the same time. But we understood that's not typical. <laughs> mm -hmm. Especially mm -hmm. for that many. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, um, I know in, in my family specifically, um, you know, the, it, it created some real rifts um, between my mother and her siblings. In fact, um, they are still estranged from one another because of things that happened during that period. And as um, our, our director, Eleanor Jones, likes to add, you know, she's one of 13 siblings. Oh, wow. And um, if you haven't had any kind of um, you know, decision maker or specifically assigned in your case, it will go to everyone who fits within, you know, a class of people as defined by your state's law, um, you know, assuming that you live in a state where they will define your, 
your decision maker for you. And that could mean 13 siblings having to come to consensus about a decision. <laughs> right. You know, what I found interesting is I was on the um, Honoring Choices Virginia website, and I saw the video or one of the videos, and it was a person talking about how when they were young, their parents or her parents had them do a treasure hunt. And the treasure was their care wishes at the end. And once they found it, they sat there and they started discussing it. And the parents said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't have to agree. And we don't care if you agree. This is what we want. And you have to honor it. And I thought, wow, that was an amazing way to really drive home a point. And thought, wow, that was pretty cool. And I think they were in their early 20s or something like that when they did this treasure hunt so that they would understand it's not your choice, it's our choice. And I thought that was a phenomenal idea. Well, another thing that, that you and I have talked about in, in our particular situation, our four children have different skill sets. So why one might be the primary caregiver and the one that's dealing with the doctors on a regular basis Somebody else might be taking care of finances. Finances. Somebody else might be taking care of home upkeep and taking care of the cars or whatever else. And it's really important to designate which person you want to make which decision. Yeah, I think that's such an excellent point because a lot of times when we're helping people through this process, one of the things that people have the most difficulty with at times, not everyone, but many people is choosing their healthcare decision maker, also known as an agent, proxy, surrogate, um, or power of attorney. And um, one thing that I've heard a lot is people who say, you know, I have three children and I really can't just choose one of them. Um, it's hard for me to uh, say this person's going to be my primary or my secondary because that looks like favoritism to some people. And how do you choose? And a lot of times just by having those practical conversations with the potential decision makers, people can figure that out by themselves. Or like you said, there can be more than one role just because somebody is not serving as your healthcare decision maker doesn't mean they can't be your financial decision maker or um, right. serving in some kind of other caregiving or um, sort of supplemental capacity. So um, there's a role for everyone in this. And we just have to figure out how to um, set up the dynamic in such a way that it works for your specific situation and that everybody's on the same page. Right. Talk about having this advanced care plan. And when you're dealing with a medical care person, i.e. in a facility or in the healthcare system and how it aids in facilitating the care. Yeah. So, um, Mike, if I can, can I clarify a little bit what you mean with your question? So are you asking about um, setting up the plan or once the plan is in place, how that really impacts care? Once the plan is in place. So there's this plan and now the, the medical professionals and the healthcare system in coordination with that, how, how that works. Sure. So when we talk about advanced care planning, a lot of times people immediately think of an advanced medical directive. 
Um, and sometimes even then we have to clarify what we mean when we say an advanced medical directive. Not, not to interrupt um, you, but I'm, I'm thinking the exact same thing, more of a, an advanced medical directive. So yeah. I'm in line with exactly what you're saying. So please continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, this does vary from state to state. So I want to I want to preface this by saying that um, you know I'm I'm most familiar with Virginia, but this is going to vary by your state. So in in most states, um, there is some kind of recognized legal advance directive. An advance directive is really just a, le a legally recognized form that allows you to do a number of things. Um, name a surrogate decision maker for yourself if you're ever unable to make healthcare decisions, um, and uh, also to state your wishes for medical care. Um, that's Those are really the primary goals of a directive. Now, um, this it, it can vary, of course, what the form looks like, what exactly it includes, um, what it what it takes to make it valid. But um, all states have some kind of recognized uh, directive requirement. Um, again, an advanced directive is a legal form. Um, it's not medical orders. You can make it yourself. Um, a lot of people think you have to go to an attorney to do this. Um, you can do it yourself. There are also uh, lots of various professionals who can help you with it. Um, my organization is one that actually helps to guide people, anybody in the community, um, through this process. Um, but once that form is made, um, it, is, it is what we call held in suspension until you are deemed incapacitated to make medical decisions. Now, this term capacity is what is really tricky for a lot of folks, especially when we're talking about dementia, because capacity is defined on a task basis. So in this case, we define capacity as the ability to understand the consequences of medical decisions. Now, for people who have been diagnosed with dementia, we know that capacity can vary over the course of even a day. So you might be able to uh, catch somebody, say in the morning, um, who is able to really be um, able to participate in those kind of conversations and even to choose a decision maker and be able to understand. And sometimes not, it really varies from person to person. So we always clarify just because you have a dementia diagnosis does not automatically mean that you lack capacity for medical decisions. It has to be determined individually. That is an excellent point. I don't think most of us who work, lay people who work in the dementia world understand that. Yeah, it's a, a very commonly misunderstood thing, even among healthcare professionals. And one thing that we tell people when it comes to this process is, you know, for those of us who really trust our healthcare system and providers, we like to think that they are very well versed in advanced directives and advanced care planning and honoring our wishes when really a lot of people are not, even our healthcare professionals. And so it's important for us when we're creating a plan to also understand how to advocate for ourselves and how to prepare those in our life who will be supporting our wishes to be in that advocate role. Um, so again, kind of getting back to the advanced directive, when we're um, you know, choosing a decision maker, we should be having those conversations with them at the time to really inform them about the planning that we're done, the decisions that we're making, what we're putting into the document, and what their role is as our decision maker. So that's one piece of the advanced care planning 
process and advanced directives. Now, there can be other documents that are included as part of the advanced care planning process, and this is especially important for people with dementia because a lot of these forms are more appropriate for people who are living with some kind of chronic illness or in the end of end of life stage. Um, it, it, again, these vary from state to state, but a lot of people are also very familiar with do not resuscitate orders. Right. Um, this is considered another choice that's often made as part of advanced care planning. Now, the difference, and this is another big point of confusion in the community, is that an, a do not resuscitate order is medical order. You can't create it yourself. Um, an advanced directive does not is not the same thing as the do not resuscitate order. Even if you say in your advanced directive that you don't want to be resuscitated, it's not the same thing. Um, and we can talk more about that <laughs> if that's of interest. But um, do not resuscitate orders can also vary as well. You can have ones that are specific facility specific, meaning that they only pertain to resuscitation orders within a specific facility. And you can also have ones that travel with the individual, sometimes called durable do not resuscitate orders. I know for, uh, for Mike's dad, the do not resuscitate order was issued by his physician and it was yellow and it was posted on the refrigerator so if, you know, an ambulance was called and first responders were called, it was there. Um, and I think that speaks to what you said. You can't just have an advanced directive and says, do not resuscitate. You have to have that legal document there or the people that respond, the first responders, have to do everything they can for that person in the moment is the way that I understood it. And I also wanted to mention that um, when I go, I went in for my annual checkup and the doctor said, do you have an advanced directive? And I said, do you only ask that of old people? And she said, no, we ask that of everybody because something can happen at any time, at any moment. So even though we're talking about people with dementia, an advanced directive is something everybody should have. That's absolutely right. And um, I would say, you know, if nothing, if, if, if you leave with nothing else from me today, it's, it's one that, that everyone who currently has decision-making capacity should have an advanced directive. Um, two, that like you were just saying, all of these forms, they are only as good as your ability to produce it in the moment that it's needed. It doesn't matter if you did an advanced directive 30 years ago. If it's in a lockbox and no one can find it when you lose capacity, it's almost like you never had one. Um, and also, third thing is it has to be more than the form. It, it can't just be a directive. Um, you know, I said a minute ago, so many people think of advanced directive as soon as we talk about advanced care planning, and it has to be more than that. It's got to be about the conversation. It's got to be about talking with those who are supporting with you, supporting you, talking with your your care providers, um, and really just making a team around yourself. If you want to think of it that way, um, the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is. Um, it goes by many names, <laughs> but um, the POLST form, as it's called nationally, or Physicians Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, in Virginia here, it's called POST, um, Physician Orders for Scope of Treatment. It's also known as MOLST and MOST in other states. We don't have a, a 
truly universal approach to this form yet. Um, this is in a lot of states um, more of an unknown thing because many states have not adopted it legally yet. Um, and many states are in transition with this form. Virginia is one where we're in transition right now. And what this form really is, it's like a do not resuscitate in the sense that um, it is a physician's order. However, it is for folks who are at the end of life stage, meaning that, you know, in a clinical sense, we would not be surprised if they passed in the next 12 to 24 months, um, which when you're talking about dementia, it may come, come into play at some point down the line. Um, now, uh, the post form, or however you call it in your state, um, pertains to pre-arrest conditions. So that means any time before your heart stops, different treatment decisions that might come into play like dialysis, help with breathing, artificial nutrition, things like this. You're able to make decisions about these kinds of treatments and when and where they're administered. Um, this is actually a form that healthcare agents can create even after the person has lost capacity as well. Um, so this is, this is really um, kind of a dynamic um, set of orders and can really be customized um, to create treat or to create treatment options and now, care plans. Now, Laura, you said this can. Who creates this form? So this is a set of medical orders. So a physician or other care provider would have to create this form. And again, this does vary a lot state by state. So I encourage people to look up the laws in their state. Um, but it would be created by a care provider, professional care provider, in collaboration with either the individual, if they still have capacity, or their healthcare agent, if they have lost capacity. Okay, I was a, I was a little fuzzy on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether it was the physicians doing it or whether it was uh, yes. me as the care provider after right. the fact, hurry up and write it down and, and all that. <laughs> um, when Mike's dad with with us, I was his primary caregiver, and we were both listed as medical power of attorney with me with priority. And there came a time he had severe dysphagia, which is difficulty in swallowing, and his food had to be pureed and thick in liquids, and it, it was progressing. It was getting worse and worse. And a suggestion was made about a feeding tube. And I went and talked to his primary nurse, who was very familiar with the case, and we worked very closely together. Um, and I talked to him about it. And because of Roger's dementia and his lifelong schizophrenia, I, you know, I asked him about this, and we knew that that Roger had he was very concerned about things that went into and came out of his body, and what the government was trying to do to him. So our concern was he was going to pull that feeding tube out. And so as his power, medical power of attorney, the decision was made not to insert the feeding tube. Yeah, he had in the past pulled catheters out, just grit your teeth and, and pull. <laughs> now, so. how is that power of attorney decision-making that we did agree with or conflict with this post document? So a post document is a little bit more general. It's talking about the types of interventions you would want in the end of life stage, just generally. Um, so whether or not to do them, 
um, in, in, again, pre-arrest conditions. So anytime before the heart stops, do you want dialysis? Do you want uh, feeding tubes? Do you want uh, even CPR? CPR is included in some post forms. Um, so these are all in the same way that a do not resuscitate order is about CPR administration generally. These also include other types of life-sustaining treatment options generally. I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> I guess my question was in in Virginia where we are, um, mm-hmm. that medical power of attorney certainly allowed us to make that decision. Yes, yes. So a post, and I should clarify too that a post form, just like a do not resuscitate order or an advanced directive, is totally optional. You don't have to do it. <laughs> it's just if it makes sense for the individual. Um, of course, we encourage everyone to have an advanced directive because all of us could lose capacity at any time, but these things should always be determined on an individual basis if it's appropriate for you. And of course, because a post form is a physician's order, your physician will work with you or your decision maker to figure out if it really makes sense for your situation. So you have all this in place. What if the care wishes are not honored by the caregiver or the person uh, charged with that responsibility? Yeah, so sadly, we know that this happens. Um, But the truth is that when you create an advanced directive, ultimately, it should be guiding the decisions made by your surrogate health um, care decision maker. Um, If it is not, or there is a concern there, Um, ultimately it should be referred on to an ethics committee or some kind of sort of third-party neutral committee for consideration and assessment. This is what happens in hospital settings most of the time, Um, either because, um, say, uh, a physician or care team suspects that a healthcare decision maker may not not be acting in the best interests of the patient, or sometimes because the patient's family has suspicions about the care team, um, or there could be some other kind of issue that comes up related to something stated in an advanced directive. Um, ethics committees will consider these issues and then provide guidance. Um, unfortunately, we know these stories happen. Um, we wish that they didn't happen, um, but that's what should be happening. <laughs> Wow. Uh, I was just curious if there was legal ramifications like, um, say, I'm the person in charge, but when it comes time to making that decision, I just can't say yes, or I can't say no, we're not going to let this happen. Even though, even though she said, or he said, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to make that decision. If there was any recourse to say my siblings or, or, or whoever. Uh, Um, You know, there certainly are legal lawsuits that come around sometimes afterward, um, but there are no official legal ramifications for not following an individual's wishes. When you name someone to serve as your agent, you're essentially entrusting them to play that role. And sometimes, and this is why the advanced care planning process really does have to be more than the directive, is that there are lots of decisions that need to be made which are totally outside of the advanced directive. Advanced directives don't cover every type of issue. And sometimes the guidance that's put 
that's put into them um, is not enough. Um, we have to, to go off of what we knew about the patient um, and, and act in what we think is their best interest. And so if we haven't had any type of sort of broader conversation or even conversation at all, um, this can be really difficult. And it's hard to know if you're, if you're making decisions that reflect the wishes of the individual. Um, right. So there really is no legal recourse. Um, it, it's a role that places a lot of trust in another person. Wow, that's, you know, that person has a lot of responsibility and a lot of weight. And, and like you've said, it's, and, and I agree that it's great to have this conversation way ahead of time so you can get on with any type of grieving process and not feel guilty about making the decision because I told you this is what I want. So it takes the burden off of that person because they're, um, they're executing your wishes. Um, before we end this episode, I wanted to uh, bring up that you are doing a free webinar uh, in August. That's so right. I wanted to bring that up that you guys do webinars all the time. Yeah, so our organization believes that it's really important to offer people support with this process because as we've just talked about, some of these decisions and have a lot of weight to them um, and can also feel really overwhelming for some people. And so we are here to, to provide that assistance to those who want it. Um, we offer a workshop every few months. Um, the next one is going to be on October 18th. And as you mentioned, it's called My Care, My Choice. Um, it's a workshop for a couple hours where we talk about the advanced care planning process. So starting before the directive, what do you do before you get there? Um, and then actually walking through the directive um, to figure out, you know, what really makes sense for you. And if you need one-on-one -on -one support, we offer that too. And there's also a whole lot of other resources on the website. Um, you know, I looked at one, paying for my future health care, amongst many others. So there's a tremendous amount of resources on the uh, website. So um, with that, uh, Laura, you've been just a wealth of information. Um, I got a whole lot of things buzzing around in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and there's so much more that we could have talked about, but um, time is short, and uh, you know that's why we have professionals here to answer the other questions <laughs> that people might right. have. <laughs> well, somewhere down the road, we may have you back again. Thank you. Well, and I've enjoyed knows, being here. If we ever get to Richmond, Virginia, we might have to have a, a glass of grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> Fermented, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't forget the wine, Mike. <laughs> no way, man. <laughs> oh, Laura, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This has been great. I have to say that listening to Laura today and um, all of the wonderful information that she shared with us and with our listeners, we've had people on here talking about the documents that you should have in place but I, we have not had an in-depth explanation of how these, what these documents are and how they work and how important they are. So I am absolutely thrilled that we had this conversation today. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's interesting, uh, her explanation of capacity, that it's whether they understand medical decisions 
or whether they don't. And that's how the capacity is measured. Not whether they remember your name three out of five times. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but to understand a medical decision. And I think that was that was really important. And that was kind of an aha moment for me. And of course, as we've talked, both you and I, uh, in our presentations, and a lot of our guests have said, you should have your advanced directives. And it's not just for old people. That's right. <laughs> and that's true. Um, again, looking on their website, there was uh, a woman, her 16-year-old daughter, I believe. And so it it doesn't even go into your 30s and 40s. It's anybody and everybody. Absolutely. Um, and the physician's order, it's for the scope of treatment. I think that was really important. And she reiterated something that you talk about all the time, have a care team in place, like your presentations that you do. Absolutely. It's, it's almost impossible to do it all by yourself. And unfortunately, too many people are put in the position where they feel like they have to do that. So, And there are resources. If family members can't, can't be there for you, you know, your local area on aging has resources available. And then websites like um, My Care, My Choice are, are there as well. So again, Laura, I'm so glad that we found you. Uh, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you, guys. This is, this is great. You can find more information about Laura and My Care, My Choice on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us and Laura, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.